Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Wednesday, March the 6th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. A little bit later, we're going to be joined by Peter Foster, who's the Europe editor of the Daily Telegraph. But first of all, deputy political editor Fia Kelly is here. Good morning, Hugh. And Jennifer Bray from our political staff. Hi. You are both very welcome. Uh, the first part of the show, we're going to be looking at ripples on the uh, otherwise calm surface of the left-wing parties. Fake. You have a very interesting story today about documents you unearthed out of, what, are, what is it, a kind of an internal party debate on behalf of the, what, what do we call them, the Solidarity the so- or the Socialist uh, Party? Socialist Party, also known as Solidarity, also known as, in a previous iteration as the anti-austerity alliance is the banner they stood on the last general election. So what these documents are is a collection of papers, policy papers uh, is the best way I could describe it, kind of circulating internally within the Irish socialist movement uh, between Paul Murphy, one of their most prominent TDs and other figures on the uh, senior figures in the movement such as Joe Higgins, former TD, Kevin McLaughlin, their general secretary. Laura Fitzgerald, who was quite active in ROSA, the uh, pro-choice group that was linked to the Socialist Party in the first instance about domestic issues. In the second instance, there is communications between uh, their international comrades in the Committee for a Workers' International and the Irish movement in general about, it, it predominantly about its approach to abortion and women's rights issues. And just before we get into the detail of what that's about, the Committee for a Workers' International I mean, is this like in the same way as Fine Gael are part of the European People's Party? It seems a little bit more intense in terms of discussing exactly what uh, what party policy would be. It is. It is. Uh, it's slightly different to that. I'd say it's a it's a it's a London or sorry, a UK based kind of umbrella group which various socialist movements and communist movements around the world would feed into in terms of policy positioning. They have regular meetings of their international executive committee with uh, representatives of various countries. So it's they have. I had a look at it, and they have parties in about thirty-six countries around the world. Yes, they're essentially uh, for a bit of detail. They're a Trotskyist party set up in the early nineteen seventies. And uh, older listeners may remember the militant movement uh, here and in the UK in the nineteen eighties. And this this international organisation was specifically set up at the time to enter. Uh, socialist and social democrat parties mm. and take them over from within which was what was what, what was being attempted entryism in the in the 1980s although they stopped doing that in the 90s I think partly because they got kicked out of those parties for example Neil, Neil Kinnock yeah. successfully Joe sort Higgins of removed them Daly. removed them from the UK Labour Party and the same thing happened here and then they 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 took a different route but that's the kind of the background to where they yes. came from originally so this this they have there's this there seems to be an internal debate going on in the socialist movement at the moment in Ireland and as part of this, these documents were distributed to members as far as we can tell and it includes position papers from the international movement. Say, like In the first instance, they are highly praiseworthy of the role of people in the socialist movement in the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment and in issues like the water char- anti-water charges movement of recent years. 
The initial difference seems to stem from the 2016 general election when the socialists in Ireland are criticised by their international brethren for not putting issues such as broad nationalisation of state industries, banks, etc. to the fore, that they primarily focused on, you know, raising taxes for services. And the response from the Irish uh, uh, national uh, executive is that that's all well and good, but we were really stretched. There's very few of us and we were very successful. I think that then develops onto a critique of what the international movement sees as the prevalence of identity politics in Irish socialism. So there is a the documents are littered with phrases about the socialists getting uh, taken away with petty bourgeois feminist causes and uh, bourgeois feminist causes. And I think they view the water charges movement primarily as the way which the working class should be corralled to bring about change in society. And there's quite interesting uh, exchanges. Um, like, for example, they specifically cite something Ruth Coppinger said at a conference in 2014 when it seems that there was a, a, this was convened by the England and Wales socialists and Ruth Coppinger spoke at it and she criticised it for being trade union heavy. And they say that what she quoted her saying in the document, they directly quote her saying, most young women don't have, don't, wouldn't have seen unions doing much for women. I thought a lot of the contributions were from middle-aged, were from middle-aged women and were economic. So her critique is that this movement is fo- focusing on bread as opposed to other issues. And they say, well, that's all well and good, but the event in question at a particular trade union focus had not been the case for many years. In our view, Root's comments reveal a misunderstanding about the necessity of us explaining how economic and social change can be won and the role of the organised working class in achieving that, as well as an underestimation of the importance of economic issues for working class women, including young women. This generation of petty bourgeois feminists put very little focus on winning material gains for women concentrating overwhelmingly on individuals' experience of sexism. So I should say that anybody who's had any uh, contact throughout the, in the course of their life with turgid left-wing prose will be uh, will be very familiar with the eighty pages which you had to play. Yes, through, it was uh, it was quite the experience reading through it. It kind of brought you back to undergraduate seminars. In, in, but in there college. is an interesting underlying point here, which is a thing which has cropped up on the left in, in various countries over the last few years, which is this potential uh, split or schism between, on the one hand, what is characterised as identity politics, reproductive rights, gender rights, um, uh, different kinds of identity, intersectionalism, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, classic class class warfare. Yeah, and the Irish national executive, barring one person who didn't uh, put their name to the response to the international committee, that person being Paul M. We'd imagine it's Paul Murphy, but he didn't answer our calls last night. They kind of forcefully responded and say, you accuse us of overestimating the importance of the referendum last year. In our view, you're underestimating it and you need to be ready for the next wave of feminist activism, which will be the way people will be, their consciousness will bring them towards us rather than other political movements. So the Irish position, as enunciated by many on the national executive, bearing one, is that they are sticking to their position and they believe this is the way to go. I thought it was interesting as well that the international movement also criticised the response by people in the social movement here to the Belfast rape trial last year and said that it was perhaps a bit too kind of the, the, the use of alien language that may alienate people from the movement was highlighted. And I think that was another interesting exchange. And in response, the Irish NEC says um, that in the context of the Belfast rape trial and presumably in reaction to the I believe her slogan that emerged from below, the IS document cautions, we have to be careful not to go along 
with the conclusions of many petty bourgeois feminists that every accusation of sexual assault made by a woman against a man has to be accepted. The IS are intimating that we just follow petty bourgeois feminists. This is inaccurate to say the least. And if they say if we were overly legalistic our approach, we would not have taken the initiatives. I, I, I do wonder what the difference between a petty bourgeois feminist and I've a bourgeois to, I, feminist I, I, is. I, I'm, uh, I'm, that's my afternoon's work ahead of me. I'm get, getting on the case straight away. <laughs> uh, but, 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 I don't know. I, I do find something intriguing about this. I mean, we talked about the source of this party, this international party, nearly 50 years ago now. And it was based on an idea of, of getting into larger parties and taking them over. It seems that in since the 1990s, the idea has been to latch on to certain issues, uh, protest issues in a, in, a, in, a, in a given country and develop perhaps an alliance with other similarly minded parties or people. So the, uh, so, so the water protest was a kind of classic example of that, the bin protest before that. Um, and that's kind of looked at approvingly by the, by the international organisation. But they're more uncertain. They're more uncertain about the kind of the, the gender politics. They're more uncertain about the gender politics. And I think where what you speak about, about latching onto issues, feeds into the debate internally within the Irish movement as opposed to the debate between the Irish movement and their international partners. And this is the crux of the dispute between Paul Murphy and others, such as Joe Higgins, Kevin McLaughlin, Stephen Boyd, Laura Fitzgerald, where he is advocating this policy of a united front, which in essence he sums up in his own paper, which Paul Murphy has distributed a paper, which says the united front method and putting forward a socialist programme today. And he approvingly, as he does throughout this entire document, quotes Trotsky and says, march separately but strike together. Only Agree only how to strike, whom to strike and when to strike. Such an agreement can be included even with the devil himself, with his grandmother and even with Noske and Grzynski on one condition, not to bind one's hands. Now, this is our listeners will all be familiar <laughs> with the events in, in Petrograd in 1917. So this needs no interpretation. Yes. So what he is advocating here is that they unite with not unite, they, if there is a common cause to be found with groups on the left and, and other movements such as Sinn Féin, then that the socialists would strike with them but not agree to unite with them. And the great theory behind this is that we go in and we both unite with people to achieve a common cause, but it, we will then show the others up as not being as revolutionary as we are yeah. and convince the working class that our techniques are the best. And the touchstone through all this is the, 20s, is the water charges movement. And they repeatedly... Paul Murphy in his document and Joe Higgins and others in the response to Paul Murphy cite the by-election in Dublin South West which brought Paul Murphy to the doll at the height of the water charges movement. And Murphy says this is a classic example how we got this issue and forced Sinn Féin, highlighted Sinn Féin's inadequacies because we repeatedly told people that they weren't advocating mass non-payment of charges, forced them to a position where they were advocating a non-payment charge and brought the whole edifice crushing down with us. And he says, this is the way to go. And he believes that others are not being as open to this approach as he is. And it just kind of delicious bits where he quibbles with their, you know, historical knowledge and historical reading of various issues back in the revolutionary period in Russia. Because one of the, um, I'm sure some people listening to this to say, why are we giving so much time to these theological uh, Marxist angels dancing on the head of a dialectic pin? But there's... Uh, this particular, the Irish party, the Socialist Party, is the most successful one of the international parties of this 36-country hydra-headed organisation. I had a look at how they're doing in other countries. They have a single councillor on the Seattle City Council. They came third in one of the Sri Lankan presidential elections with 0.04% of the vote. So they're not exactly rocking, the, they're not exactly storming the ballot uh, boxes around the world. Three TDs is their, you know, is their best result internationally. So you can kind of see here that the local party members are saying, you know, this is working for us. This, this is working and 
they had they have been quite successful uh, relative to their international counterparts. So three TDs, councillors, and most urban councils around the country, they have successfully attached themselves to numerous causes, be it water charges, bin charges, going back to the nineties. Remember Joe Higgins and that one as well. And uh, their the latest one being the abortion and women's rights movements. Now, they are kind of struggling at the moment to find an issue to latch onto, and there is suggestions in these papers about how they would use the housing crisis and their approach to that to perhaps harness support for them. But they have been quite successful. But I think the fault line within the party, like it is astonishing how much Sinn Fein, uh, Sinn Fein thread weaves its way through the domestic papers, that they're just obsessed about how we deal with Sinn Féin, how we relate to Sinn Féin, what is our position on the national question, mm. what is our position vis-à-vis Sinn Féin in the north and the south, there's a discussion about how close Sinn Féin are to the capitalist class in Northern Ireland as opposed to Southern Ireland, anti-establishment in the south, establishment in the north. It's all that that type of of, of issue. And, you know, it also goes into res- to, to compare themselves with other socialist movements, well, nominally, such as Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, and they kind of say, well, you know, Unlike Corbyn and Sanders, we do not want to engage with the the system. There is some suggestion don't engage with the system. We want to bring it down. And I think you know on the issue of Brexit, they also chat about. Well, they're clearly in favour of leave because they advocated a, a legit the PDP did in Northern Ireland. But they're slightly quiet about their intentions because they acknowledge that the issue of the borders is a huge one for everybody on this island at the moment. And um, Mur- Murphy kind of appro- discusses Corbyn's approach for a customs union it says you know we would like a customs union but on a different basis we don't want the EU imperialist model and there's a quote where he says as part of an internal discussion however no comrades are in favour of raising the demand for Ireland to leave the EU at this stage are we guilty of not telling the truth to the working class when we don't bring demand to leave the EU and establish a state monopoly in foreign trade to the fore we always tell the truth to the working class but we present the truth in the way which is most digestible to the working class at a particular time, bringing to the fore demands to address the pressing needs of working class people and connecting them to the need for revolutionary socialist change and to activating the working class and struggle. Now, I suggest out of all this verbiage and all this documentation that we've been going through, that quote, we will always tell the truth to the working class, but we present the truth to the working, present the truth in the way which is most digestible to the working class at a particular time will be the one that follows Paul Murphy around. I would think so. I think that people will jump up and down on that and it will be thrown at him in political debate to taunt him in future. Jennifer, you've been sitting very patiently and quietly there, but you've been looking at another small uh, left-wing party which is seems to be going undergoing some inner turmoil at the moment as well, the Social Democrats. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, the Social Democrats are one of the, the smaller parties in the Dáil. They were established and set up shortly after the 2014 local elections so they haven't really had that chance apart from the general election to I guess test the have their metal tested which they will in, in the forthcoming local elections so they've been uh, picking their candidates carefully uh, with the hope of well their actual aim is to increase uh, massively increase the representation on councils but also increase their dull uh, representation to around 10 seats which is obviously a very very lofty kind of laudable ambition for a very small party but while they're picking their candidates um an issue arose with one of their local election candidates, Ellie Kasyambi. It was reported that there were inaccuracies in terms of her record. Uh, she had said that she came to Ireland. She's an asylum seeker. She's an asylum seeker, on, on direct provision, exactly, yeah. And she'd said that once she arrived in Ireland that in 2010 that she uh, had stayed here. So obviously there were inaccuracies reported in, in different newspapers, um, firstly the Sunday Times. So when that story came out, um, what you would normally expect to see would be a kind of coherent response from party headquarters. Maybe they would instigate a review. 
maybe they talk to the candidate, maybe the candidate will come out and highlight or, you know, clear the record basically or, or, or set out their, their own version of events. Um, that didn't happen. What we actually saw instead was a couple of days afterwards, behind the scenes, what we know now was this kind of scrambling to to get a coherent message. And, you know, from digging around basically into what was happening in those few days, it would appear that the Ellie story and the issue around this local election candidate was just one part of a much bigger split within the party. So what's effectively happening is we have the party HQ, we have the leadership and the various different structures underneath them, and then we have the local branches. The Dublin Central branch in particular is very important. There we have um, Gary Gannon, who's a very central figure in the party. He basically has been, let's say, for example, making alliances with various different factions of the party and he has been kind of growing in stature in terms of his own influence in the party. So what has basically happened or seems to have happened from the people that I've talked to is a split between Dublin Central, Gannon um, and the party leadership, which obviously comprises Catherine Murphy, Roisin Shortall and, and her kind of key staff around them. And why is this important? It's important because we have a party here who are striking out and who in the past have been, let's say, for example, rocked by high profile departures. If you want to remember, Stephen Donnelly was another of the co-leaders and, and he left a number of years ago. So there have been rumours over the years of difficult relations within the parties, but it hasn't ever really come to the fore in the way it did following the Ali Kassambi story. So... The Social Democrats are a very different kind of a party, a very different kind of a membership, different kind of a history from the Socialist Party. They they wouldn't, I think, tend to indulge in quite the level of uh, ideological uh, speak, which we've just heard from heard, just just heard from Fiek. But one of the things that interests me is uh, I saw you suggested in a piece that one of the causes of a fissure in the Social Democrats, along with perhaps personality, um, was some differences of opinion about how to approach the uh, Eighth Amendment campaign. Yeah, I was surprised to hear this because I I think obviously covered the referendum in depth and the way that I remembered it looking from the outside in was that they were quite coherent and they were one of the first parties to kind of pin their their name to the cause, etc. and to campaign for it. But what I'm told is, you know, from from talking to various different people on both of the factions of the split is that there was a feeling amongst those grassroots in the party that they actually were a bit slow in getting their... Uh, you know, getting their stuff together and that they would have preferred that they were one of the first parties out and that didn't happen. That was the feeling internally. And was there, because at the time there was some question about how committed Roisin Shortall was to the repeal movement. I think does, is that, does that relate to this at all? I think it does. And I think it's, it's again, what I was saying before about this split between some of the grassroots and some of the membership on the ground and the party leadership. So, I mean, I, I found that quite surprising, actually. And I think it probably even goes back further than the Eighth Amendment. Back to, for example, when Stephen Donnelly left, maybe back 2017 when they had members of their uh, national executive who also quit. So, you know, the issues in the party are deep-seated, I think. I think they've been there for quite some time. I don't think they've come to the fore because they're a smaller party. They don't attract the same kind of, let's say, for example, scrutiny of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the bigger parties. So... Digging into it now, we're starting to see maybe for maybe some of the the fault lines that they have, and it is really interesting because you'd have to ask yourself what happens next. This candidate, Eli Kasambi, the, the party leadership want to instigate a review. They want it to be around two weeks long, and they want to basically get into the backstory. 
And the line that's been put out from HQ, uh, Sock Dems HQ, is they're doing it not only for them, but they're doing it for her. And for her sake, that it could be her situation could be made worse if they don't get to the bottom of it. That's the line that they're putting out anyway. So Because there's been a lot of, you know, yeah. uh, to and froing over the, the, the Ella Kajambe issue. Um, when her candidature was announced, she received some negative feedback from some of the more unpleasant parts of Twitter and then was defended very strongly. It became quite a, a social media thing at the time with a lot of people mm. weighing in on on her behalf. So the kind of anti-racist movement in Ireland very much behind her. Then there was some criticism of the Sunday Times for running that story. I have to say, personally, I think, given that the Irish Times had run a mag- cover story in the magazine interview with her the week before, I thought the Sunday Times story was, was completely legitimate for somebody who's standing for election, even though it was criticised by whatever you want to call it, left Twitter or, or, or whatever. I thought it was completely legitimate. Yeah. But probably it is difficult for her to uh, to to address those points, isn't it? I think it probably is, yeah. And she has more at play than just her interactions with the media. You know, she has her own personal case, etc. So sure. th- there is that to consider. And, and when the Sunday Times story came out, yes, you're absolutely right, there was a huge amount of criticism of the piece. And I totally agree that it, the piece was completely legitimate. And I spoke to some of her kind of closest friends in the branch in Dublin Central and asked them what they thought of the piece. And none of them had a legitimate criticism in that they said... Everything in the piece was fair. It's just the way it was framed. And when you ask them, well, what what was the framing? Which part of the framing would upset you? They said, well, maybe it's the photo. They could have picked a photo where she was smiling. And and, and really, if that's what you're going for, you're clutching at straws. Um, So what will happen next is the question. If they make a decision to suspend Ellie's candidacy, the members of Dublin Central, including Gary Gannon, at the fore of that, have made it clear that they will walk or at least he's made it clear that he will. But, you know, speaking personally, a lot of them told me that they would too. So what happens then? You have this branch where, you know, a a key branch, I suppose, where many of your members have left. It's a really bad position to be in just weeks before the local election, a local election that they were really, really hoping. Totally crucial for them. Absolutely. This is their first kind of test. It's their first big test because they've they've gotten organised since the last general election and, and they've done a lot of work on the ground and they really hoped that after the eighth referendum, a lot of those women who and men who would have been, for example, politicised, that they would have come over to the Sock Dems and that would have given them a boost. Because if you look at their breakdown in the local election, they have, I think it's around a 57% split uh, in terms of gender quota for women. So they have one of the highest levels of female representation in local politics. Well, they hope. Mm. So, you know, this should have been a very positive time for them. Instead, what we're seeing is this, and I will say it is very bitter split between the co-leaders and those people on the ground. It's not necessarily representative across the country, but yeah, it I is I was going to ask you, is this Dublin Central versus the party establishment or is this the party establishment, the people around the two existing TDs versus the kind of cohort of the, you know, the the, the pro-repeal, the uh, what, what some might refer to as the woke element of, uh, you know, of the party? Is that what the split is? Certainly seems to be, or at least something in that direction, because I did speak to, for the piece, I did speak to a lot of people outside of Dublin just to get an idea of whether this was representative of candidates outside the county. It's not really. I mean, there are growing pains. You would expect that in any new political party or any political party at all. Sure. Um, uh, but it certainly does, and I could be corrected by other members outside if I'm wrong, but it does seem to be Dublin Central versus the leadership. And one of the members in that branch told me that they're really, really hoping that after the next general election, 
the representation in the doll goes up by at least two or three because then they hope to see a leadership challenge. I mean... That's an implicit criticism of the existing... Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they're talking about... They're saying it's much deeper than a local election candidate. They're saying they feel the party doesn't have coherent policies in terms of Brexit. They feel that they don't have coherent policies in terms of climate change. They feel that the two leaders should be taking charge and putting themselves out there much more. I mean, and that's interesting because we're coming in a week where Catherine Murphy has had a good week in terms of the the Dennis O'Brien case, uh, which which he lost this week. So, you know, you couldn't accuse them of nothing in the news this week, but that's the general criticism from the branch. I suppose just to wrap it up in, in terms of these two stories, Fiac, um, when I go into my polling booth for the local, local elections in May, should I be in a, in a leftward mood uh, on the day, I will be confronted with a, a smorgasbord, a cornucopia of small parties, social democrats, solidarity, people before profit, Sinn Féin claims to be a left-wing party, the Workers' Party will be standing in my constituency and there'll be a number of self-described independent left uh, candidates as well and there's also the Labour Party um, uh, the people have commented in the past on the kind of the, the, the fissures in the left the fact that it's so fractured, fractured and then you add to that these kinds of tensions as well it's a bit of a mess for the left isn't it? It is and there are different shades of the left and like you know there is scope for like the Social Democrats internally are not in a good space as we've heard the Labour Party are not in a good position either so you the argument for coalescing some elements of the left, the soft left and the hard left is obvious. The harder left have done it in this doll with the kind of uh, the alliance between the PVP and the socialists. The case for a coalesce, coalescence of the Labour Party, the Greens and the Social Democrats, I think, is, is obvious. The Labour Party are quite keen on the Social Democrats are not because they don't want to be seen to be associated with a tainted brand. But you would think that some sort of alliance is the obvious thing to do. Like, for example, in Dublin Central... One of them goes out, transfers the other. They then go into the next door with a negotiating block. So I think that is obvious. But again, if that can happen, the level of bitterness between each strand of those camps you just named is quite so. Do they need to have an election and let the dust settle after that before I think they so. can do that? Yeah. I think so. Brendan Howland offered, he did say, you know, I would like to offer you our transfers and the response from the SOC Dems was, well, thank you, but, you know, we're not going to be no, doing they're, they're, the they're, same. They're, their tone might change after local elections. As Agreed. you say, it's, it's yes. a huge... It's a huge test for them. And if they're telling themselves they can win 10 doll seats and we'll get ex-councillors, you know, the rubber hits the road in May. And a lot of reassessment of people's national positions will come after that. And there's only 10 weeks or so to go to those elections. We shall leave that there. Thanks very much to Jennifer and Fiak for joining us. After the break, we'll be joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and by the Europe editor of The Daily Telegraph, Peter Foster. You're listening to The Irish Times. And I'm joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and also delighted to welcome Peter Foster, who's the Europe editor of the Daily Telegraph. Peter, you're very welcome. Um, What brings you to these shores? Just doing a little story uh, on what might happen in a no-deal vis-a-vis extraditions between uh, Ireland and the UK. That's one of only 10,000 thorny (laughs) questions that arise in Lots of no-deal stories around. Let's hope we don't get there. What what is what is what are the chances of a no deal now? Do you think? I was listening to the the Telegraph's Chopper um, podcast from the from the Red Lion um, back. I think at the start of January, you know, very dangerous to look at people's predictions as far back in history as 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 early January. And at that point, the correspondents seemed to think the chances of a no deal at the end of March was very high. I think seems less likely now. I think yeah, I've always thought the the chance of a no deal at the end of March is very low almost impossible and we've seen now that may has been mandated or will be mandated to go and seek an extension 
I think the risk of a no deal, insofar as there is a risk of a no deal, is twofold. One is that I don't think people have appreciated how much proactivity it will require from Parliament uh, to stop a no deal. I'm not saying it's impossible. In fact, I think it's likely. But it does require MPs to move on from the fact that that, uh, forcing May to ask for an extension is not the same as asking her to stop no deal. So stopping no deal will require uh, Tory MPs to be quite proactive in denying um, something to their party and their membership and their voters uh, which is a clean break Brexit that many of them nominally want. Now, they might well change their mind if they lived the reality of a no deal. But of course, you're stopping something from happening. And I suspect, you know, that makes it makes it makes it hard. I think if we do get a no deal, it would be towards the back end of this year. Once you've had an extension, possibly another extension, there are more mattresses at the bottom of the cliff and everyone's sort of reached a point where it becomes the politically expedient thing to do. It's just easier mm. to have a no deal, a managed no deal. Maybe at that point, the EU have sort of pointed, you know, moved slightly and uh, said they were going to boil the British frog a bit more slowly. Uh, and then you enter a space where no deal becomes the kind of politically the line of least resistance. I think that's unlikely still. But I think if you get to a no deal, that's how you get there. And in the event of some sort of an extension, uh, let's say three months for the sake, for, for, for the sake of argument, I, mean, I have heard some analysts suggest that um, Theresa May will still essentially over the course of that period of time proceed with the same strategy, which is to keep winding that clock down. And I think that will be a harder date than the 29th of March because all these other things like the question of the position of the European Parliament start kicking in and that she, she may feel that she'll be in a position towards the end of June to force through a version of her deal. I think that that probably is the plan. I think they're looking pretty shaky given how little progress Cox seems to be making in uh, in Brussels at the moment, pretty shaky for next week. Uh, but you know, the Brexiteers' dream, I think, actually is 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 if if they could win the second vote. So let's say she she loses on March the twelfth, and then there's a vote about whether or not to keep No Deal on the table. Uh, you know, the Brexiteers' dream is that is that Downing Street whips that vote or that they win that vote. No Deal remains on the table, and then you you don't go into an extension. You go into a really intense period from the twelfth of March to the 29th of March, where no deal is on the table. And in the Brexiteers imagination, the Irish are forced to make a compromise on the backstop. But they that get is their, their imagination, isn't it? Because yeah. she is on whether or not she whips <laughs> it, she's unlikely to win it. Yeah, because, you know, she's damned, she's damned the other way, isn't she? You know, she whips that vote, she loses, she loses her, her Remainer centrist ministers in their troves. So I don't nobody I think seriously thinks she is going to whip that vote. Um, but, but to your broader point, what happens in an extension, if it's only a three month extension, which is I suspect the limit of what she can ask for politically, then yeah, she comes back and we get into another phase of negotiation, possibly. You know, she's only lost by six, eight, ten votes. Is there one more thing that gets it over the line? You know, given the length of the discussions now and given the parameters of those discussions in not opening the withdrawal agreement, not, not doing something that cuts across the thrust of the backstop... Um, what could those negotiations deliver? I don't know. But again, if we, if we get, got closer towards the end of a no deal, would you get that final concession on an arbitration mechanism, on exit me- mechanism from an Irish? I mean, that's a question uh, for, for Pat here, I, I guess. Um, my sense, although nobody is really saying it yet, my sense in Dublin is that they are looking for a deal and they're willing to make a compromise on it. Now, I don't think they're willing to make a compromise to make it uh, time limited and I don't think they're willing to make a compromise that has a unilateral uh, exit for the UK from it. But I do think that there are, there is perhaps a mechanism that contains an independent a, a 
perhaps a, decis- a decisively independent voice. I don't know that that is... Because there is a review mechanism currently There's a review in, the, mechanism, in the current agreement. Yes, there is a review mechanism uh, in the agreement at present and whether that could be or the independent element of that could be uh, could be beefed up or a time limit put in for when that would, that could kick in, that both sides wouldn't have to agree after a particular time, after a particular time limit. Some of these ideas are being, uh, are being kicked around uh, in government. But my sense is that they are willing to make a concession on the backstop, despite whatever domestic political heat that may involve here, but that the Irish government won't do that unless it is pretty sure that the concession would get the deal through at Westminster. And at present, there's there no, is there's, no... There's, there's no there is no. The question is, you get a lot of this in Europe. You know, we want to be enabling, we want to be helpful. But if you, you know, if you read that, if a Brexiteer listens to what Pat just said, that's just a non-concession concession. You know, because ultimately... The, pro- the problem here is this, is that the Brexiteers want a clean break Brexit. They want to leave the customs union. And right now, there is no obvious way that you can leave a customs union a single market, as May said, right back in 2016, and deliver on the commitment to have an invisible border with no infrastructure and no related checks and controls. This will come down to the fact, uh, the interpretation of what related con- checks and controls mean and what no infrastructure means. And at the moment, with no exit mechanism, unilateral me- exit mechanism, let's say... May's deal goes over the line, Boris Johnson or a Brexiteer champion becomes Prime Minister and enters into that trade negotiation and says, we believe that we've got what we need. And, and the Irish government and the, and the European Union, the European Commission negotiating the trade deal says, well, no, you haven't. At that point, you have an impasse. At that point, you have potentially an irretrievable breakdown of talks, which is the moment where the Brits want an arbitration mechanism to come in. But an independent arbitrator is therefore essentially making a judgment as to whether or not uh, the Brits have or haven't, and the Committee on Alternative Arrangements, Unicorn Hunting, whatever you want to call it, has or hasn't delivered on the pledges on the border. And then that is a question for the integrity of the single market. It's in question for... It's a political question, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And you're asking the Europeans to subcontract the autonomy of European decision-making on matters of EU law and the single market to an Australian, Canadian, Peruvian, Ecuadorian, wherever judge... I'm still not sure that flies. Even if the Irish government suggested that, I'm not sure the European Union will... I'm I'm not sure. I I think it's impossible that the European Union subcontracts that decision to a third party. But if I understand what you're saying there, it seems to me that what you're saying is the sides are, are too far apart. Well, this is why this, this is what I keep saying about, about, about Cox's, Cox's... Cox has no new mandate. In December, the European le- leaders gave Barnier no new mandate. The backstop is the backstop is the backstop. The, you know, art, you know uh, uh, Article 20 of the backstop of the protocol is absolutely clear that in the event that one side or other is unhappy, they can uh, raise the objection, uh, meet, the, the committee meets at ministerial level within six months, and the backstop falls away when both sides jointly decide. Now, it says it could partly fall away, and you know, the, I suspect the reality is if we get into this trade negotiation... You know that gravity to some degree takes over. This is all very hypothetical. When you get into the hard trade-offs of where you're trading off your sovereignty against your market access, etc., and you're starting to stack up what that means, that in the end you end up with a, something that looks very like a customs union, if not the customs union itself, mm-hmm. and something that's very high-lined in the single market. But that's what the Brexiteers fear. 
Right? That's, you know, their, their fears are not irrational in this regard. Well, indeed, but the Brexiteers represent what? Perhaps a majority of the Tory party, but certainly not a majority in the House of Commons, as in the Brexiteer position you're describing there, which is we want out of the customs union. That's not the settled view of, of Westminster. But is it, it is a manifesto commitment. Theresa May has made a manifesto commitment. That's why she's dancing on the head of this pin where she says, you know, her whip is running around saying, if you don't vote for the deal, we'll end up in a customs union. But we'll be forced it, there by the Labour Party. And the Brexiteers, well, well, that's where the deal leads anyway. We're not, we're not entirely stupid. Isn't the reality, though, that Theresa May is not going to be the one who negotiates and concludes the trade agreement? So the manifesto commitments that she has given carry less weight with whoever is the next leader of the Tory party. And of course, there's no guarantee that the next leader of the Tory party will be the prime minister when these things are being negotiated and, and concluded. I guess a manifesto commitment is a manifesto commitment. Uh, you know, she's come as close to breaking it as possible. You know, minutes she admitted that there would be an all-UK customs union in the backstop. And the only way to avoid the backstop kicking into place is to do a trade deal which makes good on the border commitments and nobody you know Sabine Weyond has tweeted she can't see how these alternative arrangements work you know for the next years at that point whoever inherits the leadership uh and, and anyone who bets against the longevity of Theresa May keeps losing money at the moment but but whoever inherits the leadership if Mrs May's deal goes over the line in its current form with the protocol in its current form, has his or her hands tied, it seems to me. I don't, I really don't see, you know, you can have an, all the arbitration mechanisms that you want, but at the end of the day, you know, these good faith clauses are uh, almost impossible to enforce. And in any way, the EU will just say, well, we are acting in good faith to deliver the invisible border without new infrastructure related checks and controls, which you agreed to, which we've, which we all agreed to. Which so, is true. Which, no, which is absolutely true. I mean, this is, this is what, you know, this is where Brexit gets unspinnable. If you look at European Council conclusions, look at the joint report indeed. Paragraphs 49 and 50 are directly contradictory. Any rational judge coming in from an independent country asked to read that document would just go, it's bananas. Explain that to me. So, well, paragraph 49 and paragraph 50 say diametrically opposite things. Paragraph 50 tells the unions that there will be, the, the, the Northern Ireland unions, there will be no additional frictions between uh, the UK internal market. And paragraph 49 says that there will be no, uh, uh, no hard border. You know, those two things are irreconcilable. Those Which two are only reconcilable by the UK staying in the customs union. Ah, well, yeah, and which is why, you know, there, there is an exit mechanism from the from the backstop, it's to mm. go into a customs union and align on sensitive areas like agri products, etc., such a way that you minimise the requirement to uh, uh, to harmonise regulations across the Irish Sea. And is that not at least a strong possibility of how this process ends up? Let's say we do get into you know we, we you know we do get a withdrawal agreement, we do go into the two years. The two years more likely than not that the the extension to that happens as well. So you're three years down the line. There may there'll certainly be a change of prime minister, despite uh, Theresa May's longevity. Um, there may well be a change of government. Um, and you end up you end up in the customs union or some kind of Norway plus plus. I've been or writing something. that for two and a half years. I mean, I, I just seems to me the logic of Brexit is absolutely inexorable. I would say a couple of things to that. One is, it's not where the Tory party wants to be. It's not where the membership. You know, Mrs. May is stuck between this reality and the fact that, you know, Tory voters and members say they don't fear a no deal and say they want a clean break Brexit. So she is 
she's, you know, you're asking Tory Prime Minister, for example, to, if she gets into bed with Labour to do a kind of permanent customs union, to do something which is against her manifesto and which is against the wishes of the vast majority of her party and her membership. Now, that's a really difficult place to be in, but I completely agree with you. Gravity, and even in a no deal, it's hard to see how once you've had a no deal and you've you've worked through the kind of messy process of that, you end up in a negotiation and the same set of problems present themselves. You know, there are there are alternative ways around. You have a general election and the DUP are no longer material to the parliamentary permission and you end up with a very English Brexit where where you end up with an English nationalist Brexit that leaves Northern Ireland at the peril of the United Kingdom of that union in special special status effectively, puts the border in the Irish Sea. GB loses, leaves the customs union and does a hard break buccaneering Brexit. Which suggests that it's in the, which possibility, and I mean, I've written a number of times before, that the great fear of the DUP, admitted or not, is not of, you know, the green advances of Dublin. It's of betrayal by London. And therefore, it's in their, it's in their interests to conclude this deal with the all UK bastards. That's been their fear for more than 100 years, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and so that—I mean—that's a or big more than that. That's a big question, but I think we've reached a point now where, if you listen to what Nigel Dodd said over the weekend, you look listen to what Cox has said. I mean, go back to Cox currently as we speak, sat in Brussels, banging his head against a uh, against the table with Michel Barnier. I think there there is a kind of the, this for all of the spin and the and the people getting entrenched on different positions. You know, this is really substantive stuff. It, there are and, there are real yeah. There's a real world and there's only. So far that right. fudge can get over them. Now, maybe you can build a bridge out of fudge between those two positions over the chocolate river of mm-hmm. uncertainty, but it might not last. <laughs> no, no, but, and, and, you know, Cox is a lawyer, right? He is the, you know, although he may be, you know, the front man now, and it was his advice that the Brexiteers seized on that we would be trapped in a backstop, but he's still the Attorney General of the United Kingdom. And yes, he is marking his own homework, as the Brexiteers say. But, you know, what the, the British, I think what people perhaps don't appreciate is that he still needs something to change his legal advice to the government, he does. right? He can't totally make it up. And, right? the, and, the, and the, 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 the noise coming out of Brussels last night after the first meeting seemed to suggest that there hadn't really been any progress. There was talk that he was bringing a text with him, but I see no word of that text uh, this morning. And one of your colleagues, uh, Nick Gutteridge, was tweeting this morning that, you know, if the words of the, if the reports of no progress, and quite unusually, neither side briefed or gave a readout of the meeting last night, but uh, he, he was tweeting that if the, the, the reports of no progress are true, then it means one of two things, either that they're too far apart uh, at this stage to make an agreement likely or the whole thing has been pre-cooked and it'll be done at the weekend. And, you know, you can take your choice between <laughs> either one of those two competing explanations. I do know that the sense in Dublin is very much that this, that nothing will be done until the weekend. There will be nothing decisive until the weekend. So, so, so there is always a problem with these with these things, which is that, um, you know, when Cameron or whoever brings back this stuff from Brussels, Brussels thinks they've really thrown the boat out and really gone the extra mile, and it arrives in Westminster and it's dead as a dodo. You know, it's still raspberries all it's around. still born, mm. right? So there is absolutely this element of choreography of kidology where this illusion needs to be created, the anticipation needs to be built, and the Brexiteers need to be given not too much time to think about it or to read it. I think there is a kind of problem with that, which is that you know there will be a rabbit 
brought out of the hat. That's the way these things work. The trouble is that the, the rabbit is likely to be pretty, uh, uh, pretty cloth-eared, a pretty, 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 uh, 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 pretty ugly-looking moggy, I think, because when you look at the parameters of the discussion, it's really hard to see going back to the substance and going back to your outlining part of what the Irish would consider to be a concession. It's really hard to see how the rabbit does the trick. Could I ask you just one other question? It's a somewhat different different subject. It's um, I was reading a we have a piece in our paper today about a senior former BBC executive being highly critical of the way the BBC has covered this issue over the last the last few years in terms of enabling British people to understand what you know what the complexities are of the Irish situation, what the politics really are in Germany on an issue such as this, and that you know that criticism possibly could be you know directed more widely at the at British media coverage of this. We occasionally, you know, we'll we'll send reporters over. We'll give them, you know, you know, three days rations and a first aid kit, and we send them over to Sunderland or whatever to get a sense of what you know what things are are like on the ground. And the level of ignorance on the ground is startling, but perhaps not surprising because a lot of people are not engaged with politics in this kind of kind of complexity. That people think Ireland is still part of the UK. They think you know we're coming out as well. Um, but then I've been watching TV over the last two or three years and I'm watching relatively senior British politicians who also seem incredibly ignorant about some of the fundamental building blocks here. To what extent does the British media bear some responsibility for that? It's given that you've got the job of interpreting all this arcane stuff to, to, to some of them anyway. I think, I think, you know, on one level, I've been a journalist for, for 25 years now and I cannot think of a story that has been treated with more seriousness, more detail, more in-depth analysis than Brexit. You know, there is reams of it. You know, I, I've written thousands and thousands and thousands of words, which, believe it or not, I just often surprise people, is published in the Daily Telegraph, you know, uh, uh, with, with, with full and due prominence, explaining all the stuff we've just talked about. Uh, you know, the FT, the Times, the Guardian, there is actually buckets, and on the BBC. You know, Chris Morris's reality check is is terrific. But the political conversation is just spectacularly uh, cloth-eared and it's sealed in a hermetic bubble and people and I mean both in Westminster and on the outside it's, it's that strange thing where you know you preach to the choir and 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 they listen but but you know people's ability just to cling to what they believe to be the case and screen out on both sides actually whether whether it's people batting for a second referendum who want to really don't want to take all those 17.4 million people seriously, uh, or indeed Brexiteers who uh, just think, well, we can just, well, you know, it won't be that complicated. Let's just get on with it. Um, people don't want to be troubled by the facts. And and I think the media, we live in this dialogue of the deaf, deaf in some ways, where the more facts you put out there, the more it's project fear. What do you do about that? The more you, the more you set out in more detail, it's just more project fear. People just don't engage with it. And the BBC... I think have rightly been shot at a few times um, for mistaking balance for, you know, giving everybody equal airtime, regardless of whether they're saying things that are basically wrong. You know, the kind of the Rethian uh, remit of the BBC has obviously kind of crumbled uh, since since all pulpits have crumbled, whether they're journalistic pulpits or you know the pulpits of the parish priest, etc. Right? We live in a much flatter world where people don't expect to be you know, uh, talked down to and talked at. But at the same time, you know, the BBC has, for example, given equal weight to some completely fallacious arguments about trade, about about 
the single market, etc., and isn't probably good enough at, at at slaying those those dragons. But whether that would make any difference, I don't know. Perhaps the level of complexity is just such that it, 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 yeah. it, it, it's impossible That's for right. most I people mean, to engage with it. And, like, and, and I think it was, I'm not sure, I think it was George Osborne who said that one of the key insights that any politician can have is to understand just how little the average voter is interested in the day-to-day comings and goings of politics. So in a way, you know, the, the fact that ordinary voters in the UK are, are, are anywhere uh, are not conversant with the rules of the single market or the building blocks of the European but Union I wasn't is not, just talking about is not surprising. Voters. What I think is surprising is that senior British politicians up to cabinet level indeed appear to be like completely unaware in some cases of the fundamentals of the EU as an organization i mean i think we need to be careful in like media needs to be careful in a sort of a you know a, a polarized political debate on simply you know wearing the jersey for their own side and uh, you know, and 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 I think you see that maybe so more so amongst uh, Remainer journalists in the UK uh, as you do uh, uh, amongst amongst people who write for Lever publications. Peter's an honourable exception um, uh, to that, but uh, but I I I think that having been said, I mean some of the things I've heard senior British politicians, very senior politicians, British politicians say in interviews are simply quite display a staggering level of of ignorance about the EU. And we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Peter and Pat. Thanks also to Fiek and Jennifer for their earlier contributions. Thanks also to our producer Declan Condon and our engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be and you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.